Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. We the People listeners, I'm coming to you today from George Washington Law School in Washington, D.C., my home law school where I've been privileged to teach for many years, and I'm joined by two of my GW colleagues to debate the issue of the month, perhaps the issue of the year, and that is the constitutional and legal arguments for and against impeachment. As we gather today, the Senate is in the final stages of its impeachment debate about whether or not to hold witnesses. By the time you hear this podcast, the impeachment may or may not be resolved, and our goal is to introduce you to the best constitutional and legal arguments on both sides. And I'm joined by Andrew Nags, who's an adjunct professorial lecturer here at GW. He teaches a class in national security and operations regulation, law and policy. He's also the Republican candidate for Congress in Virginia's 7th Congressional District. He's served as many uh, leadership roles at the Department of Defense, most recently as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Combating Terrorism. Before law school, he was a Green Beret in the U.S. Army Special Forces and was awarded the Bronze Star. Andrew, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. And Peter J. Smith is Arthur Selwyn Miller, research professor here at GW Law, where he teaches constitutional law. He is the author with Professor Gregory Maggs of a casebook on constitutional law, as well as many other works. Before joining GW Law, he was an attorney on the civil appellate staff at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he represented the government in the U.S. Court of Appeals. Peter, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Let's jump right in with the central question that the Senate is debating as we speak. Uh, does the conduct of which the president is accused constitute a valid impeachable offense? Uh, Peter, uh, channeling the arguments of the House managers, can you make the argument as succinctly as you can for why the president has committed an abuse of power? Okay, so uh, as you noted, the, the first charge of impeachment is for uh, abuse of power. Uh, and I think the way it's phrased is something like uh, pressuring Ukraine to investigate president's political rivals while withholding a White House meeting and uh, millions of dollars in U.S. security aid from Ukraine. The constitutional standard for impeachment uh, is uh, phrased as treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, I think it's pretty uh, a view widely shared among constitutional scholars that uh, the, cr uh, the crime, that is the impeachable crime, so a crime with a lowercase c with which the president is charged doesn't have to be one that violates a federal criminal statute. Uh, now, I, I think there is reason uh, to argue that that charge that I just described, in fact, does uh, describe a violation of the federal uh, ban on, on bribery. But uh, even if that's not the case, uh, the framers included the high crimes and misdemeanors language in the Constitution in order to ensure that uh, other conduct, uh, that is to say conduct other than treason and bribery that betrayed a breach of the public trust uh, would be a sufficient grounds for removal. Uh, there was a pretty lively debate at the Constitutional Convention itself over precisely what should satisfy that standard. And uh, some were quite worried that a president interested in using the powers of the office either to enrich himself uh, or uh, in conflict with the interests of the nation uh, would not necessarily be removable if the only standard were treason uh, and bribery. And uh, they settled on the high crimes and misdemeanor standard in order uh, to ensure that they could uh, effectively capture such conduct. Uh, abuse of power was uh, one of the counts against Nixon, uh, which led to uh, his uh, resignation. And although the counts in President Johnson's impeachment were not phrased uh, literally as abuse of power, uh, the list is uh, Johnson's decision uh, to defy congressional will, and, and in particular a specific congressional statute, that uh, tried to limit the president's power over executive officials. 
uh, and uh, all done against the background of the president's refusal to enforce federal statutes on Reconstruction in the South. And so uh, there's a, a strong historical basis uh, for the claim that abuse of power is uh, impeachable. And then just to think about the specific charge in this case, the charge is that uh, the president willfully withheld uh, official acts, that is to say money duly appropriated by Congress uh, for an ally, and the prospect of a meeting with the president, which would help uh, the Ukrainian president established credibility with his uh, his own electorate in order to advance his own political goals. And and we might uh, just note that whatever else we can say about the uh, the types of acts that might constitute abuse of power, uh, I, I think the the claim of the House managers is that. Uh, the use of power to further the president's electoral prospects is essentially the most damaging kind of abuse of power because it's one that undermines the electoral process itself. And, and so uh, although there is always a fair claim in an impeachment case that the question of the president's fitness for office should just be left to the voters, uh, in the case in which the charged conduct itself undermines the integrity of the electoral process, the claim for impeachment is that much, that much stronger. Andrew, I hear Peter say on behalf of the House managers that uh, you don't need a technical crime to constitute impeachable abuse of power, that the conduct of which the president is accused might uh, be a technical crime of bribery, but whether it is or not, to withhold aid for partisan gain is a quintessential example of an impeachable abuse of power. What is your response channeling the president's defense? Well, first of all, I need to admit that I have brought a knife to a gunfight here, in, uh, specifically because uh, Peter being an accomplished uh, litigator and with me being a transactional attorney, this should be an exciting uh, conversation. Um, yes, the lack of a criminal charge is something that, and the elements of a crime is something that I think the House itself acknowledged as being relevant since there were no uh, crimes charged and the articles of impeachment simply refer to this uh, you know, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The fact that there were no elements of a crime that were substantial enough to be identified, I think, is in and of itself telling. When we talk about the chief executive within our republic acting in a manner that improves their, uh, that individual's electoral prospects, we are not describing an impeachable offense. What we are doing is we are describing first-term presidents. That is not to say, however, that first-term presidents have the authority and carte blanche to commit crimes in the interests of their future electoral prospects. However, it is to say that those who are elected to uh, public office have an obligation to their constituents and to the law and the oath uh, that they have taken to uphold and defend, uh, and we know the rest. Without the elements of crime, I struggle to see how it is that acting in a manner that inures to the benefit of what the president in, I think, uh, in his assessment and the, the offices, the administration's assessment is in the best interest of the American people. I struggle to see how that becomes impeachable. Now, when we talk about this in the abstract, it's hard to put bounds around it. So let's put bounds around what is actually at issue. What is at issue here, I think is relevant. It's is it a question of future electoral prospects, or is it a question of determining what occurred in the past, in the, uh, past election? That is something that I think is still an open question. I think it is something that, and the answer to the question of what occurred previously. Look, we went through two years of an investigation 
and found nothing uh, decisive in terms of the actual role that certain actors played in, uh, in uh, the last election. The president, whether um, in error or not, determined that there was, it was in the best interests of the, uh, of the American people to figure out um, whether or not the Ukraine played a role. I don't know if that is, uh, the, the factual basis uh, for that is, was sufficient. I don't know, but what I do know is that there was nothing criminal in that determination. It may have been um, ill-informed. Um, perhaps even uh, manipulated, but I certainly don't see what the criminal, uh, uh, the uh, criminal aspect there. And then I think we'll talk about obstruction of Congress in a bit, but um, so I will close with this and, um, and say that the um, use of power to advance one's uh, own political prospects that in and of itself does not represent an impeachable act, so. Uh, Peter, Andrew has just said that the use of power to advance one's political prospects without independent evidence of a crime is not an impeachable offense. And he suggests that if the president had uh, another motive uh, to investigate uh, past election corruption, whether that was correct or not, that by itself would vitiate the fact that he was um, acting in a way that committed a high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, what is your response to that argument? Uh, and also your response to the slightly broader argument that uh, Alan Dershowitz made uh, this week, that if the president acts in what he believes to be his political self-interest, if there's no independent evidence of a crime, that can never be impeachable. So I, I mean, just a couple of thoughts. Um, I, I think it just demonstrably can't be the case that there must be conduct that would be specifically chargeable as a criminal offense under, for example, the, the United States Code uh, in order to be uh, a justification for impeachment. So, so for example, uh, if the president orders the IRS to audit his political rivals, it likely would not constitute a violation of the criminal code, but I think is widely viewed as the sort of inappropriate conduct to advance one's political prospects. If the president uh, suggests to his aides that if they should engage in criminal conduct to undermine his opponents, he will pardon them, I think most people would view that not only as an abuse of the pardon power, but as an impeachable abuse of the president's power. It, it simply can't be that the mere fact that the president is acting to enhance his political prospects immunizes him from impeachment. I mean, I, 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 I think, of course, uh, in one sense, Andrew is right, that we have to be careful not to criminalize ordinary politics, that, that, that running for re-election entails the, in, in some sense, if you're the president, the use of official power to promote your prospects. That is to say, presidents can travel to a place where they plan to make an official speech but in making an official speech, also promote their re-election. Those sorts of things are inevitable. Presidents can support the enactment of laws and eventually sign them that will be uh, viewed as uh, pluses in their favor among the electorate, right? They, they can say, well, we ought to bail out the farmers who are struggling, and, and therefore I, I would support an appropriation to the farmers. In some sense, that's the use of official power and the way that will enhance the president's prospects. What we're really describing there is politics. That, that's not what the charge of abuse of power describes. The charge describes uh, the withholding of duly appropriated funds from Congress, right? appropriated without limitation for a, a foreign ally being withheld in order effectively to coerce a vulnerable uh, foreign leader to uh, engage in not an investigation of the president's political opponent, but merely to announce the investigation, right? And, and if that doesn't kind of describe something more than ordinary politics, I, I, I'm not sure uh, what would. Now, now, Jeff, you also asked about uh, the uh, president's lawyer's uh, broader claim 
that uh, anything the president does to advance his own reelection is effectively not impeachable because every president, and, and including this one, almost certainly views his reelection as in the national interest. I, I guess that's just enough to note that, that not only does, uh, does essentially every constitutional scholar from across the spectrum think that that, that must be wrong, uh, but also the reason why, uh, which is that it would render impeachment uh, at best empty. There would essentially never be grounds for impeachment, at least of a first-term president, because the president's acts in seeking re-election would, would, by definition, be immune from any sort of scrutiny. But it's, it is uh, hard to believe that the framers crafted a remedy for removing uh, a president under certain circumstances, right? Those where the president uh, is, is guilty of treason, bribery, or some other significant problematic act, if it would not be usable against a president who abuses power in order to secure re-election. Andrew, your response both to uh, Peter's specific claim that uh, holding that the president uh, can't be impeached for advancing his political interests unless there's a crime would empower future presidents to investigate their political rivals using the IRS or to offer pardons to aides who illegally investigate their rivals. Uh, and also, uh, do you embrace or not uh, Professor Ritterstewitz's broader claim that nothing a president does to advance his reelection can be impeachable as long as it's not criminal? Well. With respect to uh, Dershowitz's claim, I think there has been a bit of a mischaracterization about the how broadly uh, that is applicable. But that notwithstanding, I you know must hasten to say that in the same manner that acting in one's own best interests, uh, future electoral uh, prospects does not absolve one of you know from a potentially uh, impeachable offense. Similarly, running for office does not insulate one from uh, investigation from crimes, potential crimes and uh, uh, conduct committed previously. I think what is at issue here is the nature of the, uh, the topic of the investigation. If one believes that there was no original uh, criminal conduct or corrupt conduct uh, that occurred on the basis of a vice president in office shuttling around um, uh, his son on Air Force Two and then engaging in particular activities that would inure to the benefit of that child. If there is, if no one has any issue with that or if that is not um, problematic, well then it calls into question why then investigate other than to uh, handicap someone who might be running against you in a future election. But if there is a case to be made, if there is a question as to whether or not there was a crime that was committed or some, uh, some uh, uh, type of, of corrupt act that occurred that then affected either the previous election or, um, or affected our uh, national security policy at the time, well then I think it is entirely uh, separate from a question of whether or not it benefits the current president and uh, uh, that question is entirely separate from the, the question of whether or not it benefits um, the uh, American electorate to investigate. So Peter, I hear Andrew say that the question of motive is central to his defense. And he suggested that as long as the president acted for a mixed motive that may have included not only personal political benefit, but also the legitimate desire to investigate corruption of uh, involving Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or other election irregularities, then that cannot be an abuse of power. Your response, and also please tell us about the factual scenario about withholding aid to Ukraine that you believe has been established by the House Articles of Impeachment and by the House managers that suggest that the president's motives were 
corrupt and impure. Uh, okay, I mean, I think we can just start by noting that, that there's really at least two questions that we're asking. And so, so one is, is the conduct with which the president charged, if proved, a sufficient basis for impeachment? And that, that's mostly what we've been talking about so far. I mean, there is, of course, a second question, as there is in any trial, which is, are the facts as alleged true, right? Did the president do what the president is accused of? And, and so first, I would just say that as for the, the conduct as charged, uh, I think it's, it clearly states uh, an impeachable offense. Now, as Andrew notes, I mean, th there may be questions about whether, in fact, the president withheld aid to uh, advance his political prospects uh, rather than, for example, withholding aid in order uh, to ensure uh, that the, um, the country to which the money would be given has not been engaged in corrupt practice, uh, or because uh, the president believed uh, in good faith that uh, a one who happened to be a political opponent himself had, had engaged in corrupt conduct worthy of investigation. Now, um, I mean, as for the second question about the facts, the, the best I can do uh, is to refer to the record of testimony in, in the House, which, which I think uh, created a, a fairly convincing portrait uh, that the, the president was concerned less about an actual investigation of uh, former Vice President Biden and his son, but rather than with the mere announcement that uh, Ukraine might uh, perform one all of which would suggest that his interest was more in the optics of something that would taint a political opponent than in the underlying basis of the claim itself. Um, we should also just note that I, I think the, the claim of corruption in, uh, in Ukraine, that is, that is to say uh, Biden corruption, has been fairly thoroughly debunked because he was acting quite consistent with what uh, for administration after administration until this one has been perceived as core American policy in the region. But, but finally, again, we, we can just note that to the extent that the president thought uh, that uh, Vice President Biden had engaged in corrupt conduct abroad, we have a, a fairly well-established mechanism for responding to and investigating matters uh, of that sort. But, but there was never any request for an investigation uh, by law enforcement authorities in our country. And the fact that the president's wishes in securing a statement of such an investigation were being carried out not by officials at, for example, the State Department, uh, but instead through his private attorney, tend, tend to suggest that his, tent, his intent was not pure in that sense. Now, 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 finally, you did raise a question. Well, well what, if, I mean, what if, as is often the case in, in, in uh, criminal cases more generally, the, the accused acted with mixed motives? So what if the president thought, well, I think Biden did something wrong. I, I genuinely do. But, but I also think it would advance my uh, personal political prospects if uh, others knew that he had done something wrong. I mean, th that's a difficult question. Because um, it, 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 it raises both uh, a factual question. Well, well, how does one know what the president's motives were when, the, um, when, when we're not very good right, at psychoanalysis, particularly when the president won't testify and has ordered uh, all of his aides to refuse to cooperate in the proceeding? But it also just ra does raise a more interesting question of law. Right? What do we do when someone acted with a, a range of motives? And I guess the short answer is that ordinarily, Right, outside of the context of impeachment, as long as the actor has the requisite intent, it doesn't matter that there might have been other motives for acting. But whatever we can say in, in other contexts, impeachment strikes me as different. Right? So, 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 so just note something else we, we might come to later. Another argument that the president's attorneys made over the last couple of days is that the House didn't prove its charges beyond a reasonable doubt and therefore the president shouldn't be convicted and removed. Now that's the standard in a criminal proceeding, uh, but I, I don't think it could possibly be the standard in impeachment. I mean, for example, imagine that the president uh, was impeached for ordering the murder of a political rival. I doubt we would say, well, we think it's 75% likely that the president ordered the murder of his political rival, but we can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Therefore, he should remain in office. Right? I mean, that, that, that just couldn't possibly be the standard. But, but it also does tend to suggest that when matters of impeachment are at stake, we don't insist on the same type of showing we would in a criminal proceeding. And if the president acted with corrupt intent among other motives, that that would not uh, be a ground for refusing to, to remove from office. At least that alone wouldn't be a ground. So Andrew Peter made a number of points, and I'd uh, like you to respond on the facts. First, he said that on the facts available and presented by the House, the president seemed more interested in the optics of the meeting than actual investigation, suggesting that he wanted to taint his rival rather than discover corruption. Second, he said if he really did want to uncover corruption, there were legitimate means through the FBI, and this was an irregular means. And, and third, he said the standard of proof shouldn't be beyond reasonable doubt, but something lower. Your response to all those facts, and tell us why you think the facts, as alleged by the House and ventilated by the House managers, do not make out a convincing case of corrupt motive. Well, certainly, uh, on the facts, uh, with respect to the op optics, uh, I have to, <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but there are always instances where the United States demands a statement of commitment rather than waiting for a, the actual act to occur before moving forward with an agreement. That is standard practice. So the fact that the president wanted a public statement, and now, look, I don't, uh, uh, I don't pretend to know what was in the president's head at the time. All I can do is share with my experience. And I will tell you that the, uh, uh, the statement and demanding that the president of Ukraine stated that he was going to initiate these uh, investigations is not, uh, it is not unusual. And that is not an indication of, of lack of commitment to the actual underlying investigation. That is standard foreign policy. Um, and there's a bit of a nuance there because it really speaks to diplomacy and the extent of what our government can, in fact, demand from, uh, from another sovereign. So I, do, I, I challenge the premise um, uh, completely that the president asking for a statement rather than the initiation of the investigation itself uh, indicates something other than uh, a, a, a commitment to the actual underlying investigation. And also, Peter, I, I, I really need to um, challenge you on this assertion that this administration is deviating from core foreign policy administration after, after administration. And you're absolutely right, because when uh, you, the uh, Crimea was invaded and annexed by the, uh, by the Russians, that occurred during the last administration. So that was not a circumstance that any previous administration had to deal with. That said, 2014, right? That was during the Obama administration. That said, what did the Obama administration do? It provided non-legal aid and made phone calls. What was on the table under this administration? Providing lethal aid and actually committing to assisting the Ukraine in resisting Russian influence and uh, little green men and irregular warfare all throughout sovereign territory. So you're absolutely right that there was a break with policy because the previous policy was insufficient uh, to assisting our partners in resisting the, uh, the Russian aggression. So, and then with respect to the, uh, the fact that the president was relying on his own personal attorney rather than using some official uh, uh, appendage of the United States, of the executive branch, well, I think therein lies the punchline. Therein lies the evidence that this was not about investigating a political rival. 
first of all, there, who's the nominee for, who's the Democratic nominee um, for 2020? There is none. Exactly. There is none. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would point out is that Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, was running around the Ukraine back in the heady days of 2018. Our good friend, former Vice President Joe Biden, announced his candidacy in 2019, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, if I remember correctly. I think that that is further evidence that the president was, in fact, concerned about uh, corrupt activity. He was, in fact, concerned about the last election and actions that were taken by either public or private entities in that, uh, in, in that region, rather than throwing mud on Joe Biden. So I will leave it there. We'll uh, get to um, obstruction of Congress in a moment, but uh, Peter, I want to know what your limiting principle is for non-criminal acts that benefit a president. What is the standard that the Senate should apply in determining a high crime or misdemeanor to distinguish uh, beneficial acts that uh, have the incidental effect of helping the president's reelection from those that are high crimes? And what do you say to the president's lawyers who say if this is impeachable, then any president who acts in foreign policy to advance his interests can be impeached? So it's a very good question, and I think it's it's one that. Uh, for much of American history, has, has kind of concerned scholars because impeachment, on the one hand, uh, could be used as a partisan tool against a president uh, who is from the other party, from uh, those who control at least one house of Congress. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there is a long-standing and deep concern about the risk uh, of a president who seeks to abuse power while in office. And so dating back to the Constitutional Convention, there was a debate about just when uh, we should be able to remove the president. Now, interestingly, the, the, the constitutional language, treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, not surprisingly, evolved over the course of the convention. The, the original uh, proposal uh, and, and what was the template uh, for the constitutional text was that the executive would be removable on impeachment and conviction of malpractice or neglect of duty. That was the original language. And then there was a lot of uh, discussion about the scope of that power, and, and some expressed concern uh, that it would uh, enable the removal of a president essentially for uh, what would be a policy disagreement. And, uh, and then uh, a committee proposed shortening the phrase just to uh, treason and bribery, which of course provoked concern uh, that that was too narrow a standard. And, and after uh, considering uh, language that would say uh, treason, bribery, and, and maladministration, eventually James Madison proposed the high crimes and misdemeanors language to, to capture the idea that would be, there would be other conduct sufficiently problematic to justify uh, removal. Now. Uh, most interesting for these purposes is that Madison's proposal would have said uh, high crimes and misdemeanors against the United States. And uh, when, and the, the convention approved that language. And that, that last little phrase against the United States was dropped in something called the Committee on Style. Their job was just to make the language sound pretty and flowery, but not to change the underlying substance. And, and I think if those words will start, will, were left in to the constitutional text, it would probably make a little bit clearer the types of conduct that we're, we're talking about. Uh, one protection for overreaching of the sort that we've described, right? Well, what's to stop a, a Democratic-controlled House from just impeaching a president they don't like, or a Republican-controlled House from doing the same to a Democratic president, uh, is uh, twofold. Uh, one is that that is a political act that comes itself with potential consequences, right? So, so the Republicans lost seats in the House in 1998 uh, after, uh, after impeaching President Clinton. Uh, but, but second, right, that uh, you would still need a two-thirds vote in the Senate. You need, you need 67 votes today in the Senate to convict. And, and that, of course, itself is an important limit 
on the overreaching uh, problem uh, that one would seek to remove on, on political ground. And now having, having said all of that, it's not easy to say in the abstract what sorts of conduct designed to enrich the president's political prospects, but perhaps in tension with the interests of the nation, should be sufficient. Uh, in part because we quite uh, fortunately don't have a long history of presidents having engaged in, in that conduct. But, but I, I have difficulty thinking that we would be setting a dangerous precedent to uh, remove a president who uh, essentially threatened the withholding of foreign aid appropriated uh, by Congress from a foreign nation in exchange for a favor for the president's political prospects. Uh, and I, so I think it's difficult to say in the abstract where, where one would draw that line. But, but to take the examples I gave earlier, I don't think many people would be troubled by the idea that instructing your aides uh, to commit criminal acts to undermine your political opponent and then promising a pardon would constitute an abuse of power, even if it wouldn't actually violate a, a criminal statute. And, and that if we are fortunate, we won't have to answer these questions anytime soon. But that impeachment exists as a remedy for precisely those cases where the conduct seems sufficiently great. And Andrew, the flip side of that question to you, uh, the House managers say, if this conduct is not impeachable, then no self-interested political conduct in foreign policy is impeachable, and future presidents will be unconstrained kings. What is your response? I would challenge the uh, what the definition of this conduct is. If we take the, uh, the summary that Peter just provided, um, if I quote you accurately, uh, threatening the withholding of foreign aid in exchange for uh, an act that would benefit the president politically. Well, I think we can, um, we all see issues there. However, in this instance, I don't know that that defines what actually occurred. We have access to the, uh, to the transcripts. And again, this is not, uh, it's not unusual. There are no stenographers in the executive office of the president that I'm aware of. So I've been on similar, uh, similarly uh, classified calls. I've conducted those calls. I've uh, spoken with many foreign leaders and, uh, and engaged in uh, quite a bit of negotiations over the last few years. And I will tell you, there's never anyone taking perfect uh, uh, notes in the room, and furthermore, they're, they're never recorded because of the nature of it. So we have access to the rough transcripts. I don't see the threat. I don't see the uh, delivery of a threat. I don't see the acknowledgement of a threat uh, by the other party. So again, in the abstract, I would agree that uh, threatening another world leader purely in your own self-interest, that certainly rises to the uh, level of an impeachable offense. However, that description does not de define, that does not describe what actually occurred. And, um, and you can challenge the facts on that. But um, in terms of limiting principles and, and suggesting that if this act if this president's actions um, are not impeachable, then we are ushering in, ushering in an era, era of, uh, of monarchs from here on out. I think that is uh, absurd on the face of it. I truly do. And I believe that there are uh, a great many instances in diplomacy in just the conduct of our foreign policy where the United States places conditions on the provision of aid to foreign countries. Again, that might be startling to your listeners and uh, those of us here in the room, but foreign countries do not have a right to, the American, to American citizens' resources. They are always conditioned, always. And 
whether that is a whether those conditions have to do specifically with the um, demonstrating that the recipient of our foreign aid is going to be a good steward of their resources and by the way being a good steward of the resources that we're providing necessitates a bit of downward pressure on the existence of corruption. So um, we have always conducted our, our foreign policy in that manner. So that in and of itself uh, does, not, uh, does not represent an impeachable um, uh, circumstance in, in my opinion. So um, in, in, uh, in answering the question about um, whether or not the you know, failure to remove this president will uh, open the door to future presidents doing whatever they wish. I, I just do not uh, see how that can possibly be the case. Let us turn to the second count, which has to do with obstruction of Congress. And the uh, president's lawyers say that he was simply making a good faith assertion of different legal justifications for not complying with different subpoenas ranging from executive privilege to the ideas that the subpoenas weren't properly authorized, and that it can't be proper to consider this obstruction of Congress or an impeachable offense, even if the House disagrees with those legal theories. Uh, Peter, your response. So, so, the, uh, so the second charge of obstruction of, con uh, of Congress turns on uh, the president's directing his aides to defy subpoenas issued by the House and, and directing officials to refuse to testify. Now, now, this is a thorny area in the law, and it's thorny in part because we have very little law about it. Uh, so, for example, the, the president's lawyers say uh, that those advisors would be protected from having to testify either by something called executive privilege or by some other form of immunity for presidential advisors. Uh, and, and there is this kind of rich debate about the the scope and in the latter case existence uh, of those forms of privileges. And so, for example, uh, President Nixon refused, at least initially, to turn over tapes of conversations in the White House when a subpoena was issued for them by a special counsel and by a congressional committee by saying that uh, the president had the right to keep conversations with trusted aides private and that if he had to disclose the content of those conversations, his aides would be reluctant to give him candid advice for fear that discussions on sensitive topics and even embarrassing discussions about policy could eventually be made public. Uh, the Supreme Court famously uh, disagreed that uh, privilege applied in that case, although it recognized the existence of a presumptive privilege for the president. And that privilege, as defined, is the, um, the uh, privilege to shield testimony by close advisors to the president uh, about their confidential communications with the president. And, and I said presumptive because the court made clear that uh, even though the privilege exists, it can be overcome by a showing of need. And so in the Nixon case, it, the showing of need was in a uh, uh, criminal prosecution of Nixon's aides uh, who uh, uh, wanted access to, and the special counsel, the prosecutor in the case wanted access to, to determine essentially the veracity of the charges against the aides. And the court said uh, that uh, in cases involving national security or military secrets, the claim for executive privileges is clearly much stronger. And so one could imagine an administration acting in good faith, saying, we're talking about a matter of national foreign policy, uh, one uh, that might be important to the safety and security of the nation. Uh, and therefore, the uh, presidential advisor can't testify about some of the details of the conversations. But of course, that, that's not the claim in this case. First of all, the administration has actually never invoked executive privilege. And there is a sort of well-established tradition since the United States uh, versus Nixon of dealing with these sorts of conflicts between congressional oversight and the administration's reluctance to disclose conversations. There's been actually no, uh, no invocation of executive privilege. And even if there were, what would ordinarily happen in typical congressional oversight, an odd impeachment, would be some sort of accommodation. The witness would testify, but perhaps would decline to answer certain questions 
that call for the disclosure of conversations with the president on certain subjects. But of course, that's not what happened here either, because the president has categorically prevented any of his aides from testifying about any of the matters in question. And then finally, this privilege, like all others, like for example, attorney-client privilege or doctor-patient privilege, is one that can be waived. And it can be waived not only by failing to assert it, but by talking about the conversations in question. And for example, releasing information about those conversations, both of which the president and his aides have already done. And so I think it is much more difficult, therefore, in this case to say, this is a good faith assertion of a privilege that all presidents since George Washington have claimed. Uh, because it is a categorical resistance to oversight. And then finally, this isn't the case of a congressional committee trying to figure out, are federal funds being spent appropriately? Or might there have been some wrongdoing? This is, this is now uh, a case in which the House has uh, impeached the president for failure to cooperate in, in any way with that proceeding. And, uh, and of course, if the uh, members of Congress have no way to gather the information relevant to deciding whether the president has engaged in impeachable conduct. Then the president could frustrate impeachment simply by being uh, a stonewall, right? simply by stonewalling the, the committee. And, and I'll just note finally uh, that uh, in kind of parallel to the impeachment trial in the Senate, the uh, White House and then the president's personal lawyers are currently litigating a series of cases in federal court about the enforceability of congressional subpoenas uh, uh, for testimony. And uh, in each of those cases that involve, uh, and, and sorry, and, and, and also from uh, private requests uh, for the information in the course of litigation. And in the cases that have arisen outside of the context of a congressional subpoena, the administration has said the only way to get that information is through congressional oversight in the impeachment process. And in the case involving congressional subpoenas, the, the uh, president's lawyers have said, Congress is not allowed to obtain that sort of information through oversight. And, and so the, the blanket assertion of categorical privilege, regardless of circumstances or nature of conversation or assertion of the privilege uh, or the nature of the conversations that are at issue I think is a substantial uh, and sufficient basis for Congress to impeach because otherwise the impeachment process would be empty because the president could frustrate the disclosure of the facts necessary to judge his conduct without any sort of consequence. Thank you so much for that. Andrew, you've just heard Peter say that although some assertion of privilege in consultation with the Senate and with judges is permissible, a categorical assertions of privilege to resist all subpoenas in impeachment trials and federal courts are not consistent with presidential accountability to the rule of law and in the case of impeachment constitute a high crime or misdemeanor. What's your response? Well, uh, Peter, you cited to the uh, Nixon impeachment a, a number of times as, uh, as providing um, uh, guideposts and precedent for how to proceed here. There's a fundamental difference, perhaps two. First of all, there were cr criminal. Uh, there was criminal conduct that was alleged during the Nixon impeachment. That's not the case here. I think we already established that. And uh, the second thing that is different is that the. Uh, the courts were actually involved. The, the full panoply of checks and balances that our system is built upon was invoked during the impeachment uh, of, uh, of Richard Nixon. Whereas here, for unknown reasons, and I have my suspicions, but for unknown reasons, the House did not allow the courts to deal with the question of whether or not um, whether or not to compel these witnesses to testify. Executive privilege is I I, I understand uh, 
the belief that there's this assertion, this, this active assertion that must be made. But having been a senior executive in, in uh, a portion of the uh, executive branch and representing the administration and representing uh, the <coughs> Department of Defense, I will tell you that there are a great many instances where Congress asserts an oversight role that executive agencies push back on without necessarily relying to the assertion that it it's a matter of executive work. That happens all the time. The, if, and this really speaks to the larger point. Of the two articles of impeachment uh, here, I, I would tell you that this obstruction of Congress is the most dangerous. It is the absolute most insidious, uh, uh, dangerous one. Because if this is allowed to continue breathing and, and, uh, and, and any continued success, what that does is it eviscerates a co-equal part of our government, branch of government, from doing business without being directed and controlled by another branch. And that is incredibly dangerous. So the executive branch does, in fact, exist and does manage information that, the, uh, that Congress does not just simply have, per se, uh, direct access, unfettered access to. That has been the case. Uh, from the from the founding of the republic, and to the extent that Congress wishes or believes that it should have access, well, then it can resort to the courts. That did not happen here, and that process was not allowed to play out fully. So, without uh, actual uh, subpoenas that were able to be challenged and uh, upheld in court, then the president need not resort to uh, uh, a, an explicit claim of, of, uh, of executive privilege in directing members of his administration to not comply. That is not, that has happened all throughout our history. Now, I don't want to uh, engage in U2-ism. I don't know if that is a thing or not. But um, one need only look back at the last administration where, uh, for example, um, Eric Holder, the attorney general, refused to appear before Congress. In fact, Congress held him in contempt. The attorney general refused to appear before a duly appointed committee that was investigating an issue, I believe it was Fast and Furious. So this has occurred in our past, yet that was not characterized as impeachable. That was, uh, that. No, I, I certainly don't support um, Eric Holder's decision, but that was yet another expression of executive privilege that um, has occurred throughout every administration. So, um, the, uh, so the lack of alleged criminal conduct, the lack of, of allowing the uh, judicial branch to participate and uh, to uh, render a decision here, I think that those two characteristics are what makes this completely different than, uh, than what we saw during the Nixon impeachment. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this rich and important debate about impeachment. I'm gonna ask you, our great GW Law audience, to vote after hearing closing arguments. Would you, if you were a senator, vote to convict or acquit on the I have charges? two of my students in here. Okay, well, <laughs> so so you can leave I the room. Know, I don't know how fair that <laughs> Absolutely, is. Absolutely, we'll have blind voting. Um, so I should but, have but, at least and I want, two favorites. Well, I, and I want you to vote not your political preferences, but your constitutional judgments after having heard this serious and substantive debate on both counts. Uh, but first, we'll have very brief closing arguments in the spirit of the Chief Justice. I'll impose a rule of about three minutes, and 
please tell us as succinctly as you can, Peter, why you believe that the president should be convicted and removed from office for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just step back for a moment and, and note that the reason why we have an impeachment remedy is because of the risk that a president who wields enormous power in our system would ultimately seek to act in personal uh, rather than national interest. Now, that's obviously true in, in, in some senses in, in cases of crime, right? The identified crimes in the impeachment clause are treason and bribery, right? Both of which uh, show a compromise of national interest in service of, of personal interest. But, but the, the, the phrase we said is it's quite broader than that. And so we have impeachment available for those times when a president seems unwilling to act in the national interest, uh, but rather to act uh, in the service of personal and more crass political interests. Now, now Andrew noted a few moments ago uh, that uh, it's inexplicable why the House chose not to subpoena uh, the witnesses in question in this case. I don't actually think it's all that hard to explain. The president made clear that uh, they would, that he would order his aides not to testify, thereby defying the subpoenas, on the assumption that litigation would ensue. And that is often what happens in these cases. But there's many unique things about uh, this impeachment process. But, but one of them is that uh, this president will be the first president to have been impeached who will be running for re-election. Right? President Clinton was a second-term president. President Johnson was a first-term president, but he did not get his party's nomination to run the following year. And President Nixon resigned rather than face the prospect of impeachment. This is uncharted territory, but it's not a secret what the president's impeachment defense strategy was. It was to run out the clock. It was to litigate the subpoenas until after the election had occurred. And that's the basis, I think, ultimately, for the obstruction of con Congress charge. It goes hand in hand with the abuse of power claim. The president sought to corrupt our political process and the service of his personal goals. We cannot leave to the political process, that is to say, a vote of the people, the question whether to punish because the very electoral process itself is what the president sought to compromise by his actions. And therefore, uh, the president's attempt to frustrate congressional oversight by refusal to cooperate is simply a desire to ensure that he could wage that battle on his own terms. That is to say, in a perhaps corrupted electoral process. And so I think that both charges uh, not only are sufficient, but that uh, failure to convict and remove represents a, a significant danger. N not, not just uh, in the present sense, that we don't know what the president will do next, emboldened right, by an acquittal in the Senate. Right? After all, his fateful call with Ukraine came the day after the Mueller report which described a consistent pattern of welcoming foreign assistance in the last election by the president and his team, and described uh, many counts that would clearly rise to the level of obstruction of justice under the criminal code. Right? That was when the president made the next step. But we would also have to worry what it suggests for the future, for, for the next president, right? and, and, and for the president's ability to use the power of the state to serve much more crass personal goals, always able to point to the acquittal of this president as president. And Andrew, the last word is to you. Why do you believe that the president should not be convicted and removed from office for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress? There's no platonic ideal for what a perfect foreign policy looks like. It is always a matter of judgment. Elections have consequences. And the conduct of foreign policy, the pursuit of policy goals, is always a feature of the administration that is elected. The fact that 
the majority of legislators in the House um, oppose those policy goals, that does not in and of itself make the pursuit of those goals impeachable. Peter mentioned earlier a couple of things I would like to point out. The hypothetical that it would be um, improper for impeachment to be wielded uh, simply because a Democratic House uh, uh, doesn't like the Republican president. I would ask, how, would you, how could you tell whether or not that Democratic House um, disliked that president? Could it be uh, because of their actions or their statements, perhaps on the day of inauguration, uh, stating that they were going to uh, pursue impeachment and throughout the presidency? That, those could be, I think, um, worthwhile indicators of not liking a president. But setting that aside, disagreement over policy does not destroy the legitimacy of the policy. Now, we could layer in all sorts of, all uh, uh, manner of interpretation of motive for why this president acted. But at the end of the day, if we are, if we are holding this policy up against the previous policies of uh, previous administrations, the one immediately passed, I think you will see that there is much more vigorous defense of this partner that is uh, under threat in the region. That said, I'm highly concerned about the conduct of this impeachment uh, in events, the, the impeachment proceedings, particularly since something that has uh, has taken root on the side of the House managers and the uh, Democratic proponents of this process. And it's something that Peter just said, that we cannot leave to the vote of the people, leave it to the vote of the people to punish this president. Because in certain groups' estimation, the people will be fooled that the process has been so corrupted that those who know understand that this president will destroy that ability of the people to bring their will to bear. I think that is very dangerous. And I think that is exactly why uh, our founders designed this government in the manner that they did. The vote of the people should be what we resort to. And this notion of having to engage in an in, in activity, in an impeachment activity, on the basis of a foreign policy objective that you don't necessarily agree with, and under the belief that the president is so going to corrupt the process that the American people won't be able to know or discern that they're being fooled, that's not what this system, that's not what our government was designed to uh, enable. So I, uh, I believe that the president's actions um, fundamentally are, uh, do not represent impeachable, um, in, in impeachable activities. I think that the president was acting consistent with foreign policy actions, di diplomatic actions that pre long predates this administration. And I believe that the exercise of executive privilege certainly can be challenged in court, but that is the natural process. That is the way our system is set up, and it ought not be justification for pulling the country through this process in a manner that is not consistent with uh, the way that foreign policy and uh, the interplay between the branches have been conducted in the past. So. Thank you so much, Peter and Andrew, for a thoughtful, substantive, and above all, civil debate on this gravest of all constitutional questions. And now, 
GW friends, I would like you to cast a vote on the two questions before the House. And I want you to take this vote very seriously. Put yourself in the position of an open-minded senator who's listened carefully to the best arguments on both sides of this question. Watch our worthy opponents shake hands in the best tradition of civil dialogue as James Madison smiles benignly and approvingly on the civility of this debate. And really do try to separate your constitutional from your political judgments. And try to think about uh, casting your vote would you cast the same vote if the president were of a party you were of a different party? And at the end, after you cast your vote, I'm going to ask you who changed his or her mind based on hearing the arguments and whose mind was open to the arguments on the other side. Okay, so having gravely deliberated and thoughtfully considered, uh, who would vote to convict the president of the United States on the charge of abuse of power? And who would vote to acquit the President of the United States on the charge of abuse of power? Uh, we the people listeners, I'd say it's a lopsided majority in favor of conviction, but there's a, a, a healthy minority in favor of acquittal. Who changed his or her mind after hearing the arguments about abuses of power? <laughs> no takers there. And whose mind was open to the arguments on the other side? And we're getting a good majority of this enthusiastic room. And now we come to the uh, abuse obstruction of Congress charge. Having heard the arguments, we would vote to convict the president for the charge of obstruction of Congress. We would vote to acquit for obstruction of Congress. It's seeing us about the same as the uh, abuse charge, but a slightly higher number in favor of acquittal on obstruction. Uh, who changed her mind after hearing the arguments? Uh, we did one open-minded senator is raising her hand. And, uh, congratulations for your thoughtfulness. And whose mind was open to the arguments on the other side? And we're getting a healthy uh, majority. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. And please join me in thanking Peter and Andrew. Thanks to GW Law's Student Bar Association and Public Contract Law Journal for hosting this great live event. The episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott, with special thanks to Andrew and the great AV team at GW Law. Research was provided by Robert Black, Nicholas Mosvick, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember, dear We The People friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and love of constitutional learning of people from across the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.